police in the morning. Welcome, B-Movie fans, to another B-Movie chat. Whenever a, a work in a particular medium becomes popular enough, you can guarantee that some corporation will attempt to buy the rights to that work and turn it into a media franchise. Defined by Wikipedia, a media franchise is a collection of media in which several derivative works have been produced from an original work of media, usually from a work of fiction, such as film, a work of literature, a television program, or a video game. This usually results in sequels, spin-offs, reboots, extra seasons, and expanded universes. The intellectual property may even expand into alternative forms of media, creating an, a multimedia franchise. While a media franchise can sometimes make an existing universe more interesting by expanding its mythos, it will very often overstretch the original story, expanding it far too, too wide, adding unnecessary new characters and plot elements, having characters act in ways that contradict their original nature, just to create conflict and resurrect popular characters for no other reason than the fact that they're popular. These choices tend to cheapen the overall story and undermine the original point of the source material. The subsequent installments are created with the intent of making money, rather than telling a story worthy of, of telling, and will continue until fans have grown bored eventually discarded by its corporate owners without a dignified ending. The question we must ask is, is creating a media franchise a good idea, or will it inevitably kill the story it's based on? How can a franchise be properly implemented, and when should a story end in order to maintain artistic integrity? I should add that while a franchise may be financially successful, it can still be an artistic failure. After all, if financial success and artistic integrity were mutually exclusive, then Adam Sandler and Tyler Perry would be amongst the greatest artists of all time. Joining me today is B and this B-Movie Chat is musician, author, and YouTuber David Stewart. David, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So what do you think about when a story should end? When should it stop being told? And when is a sequel appropriate? It seems like every time I look and see a movie coming out, there's another sequel or something, some kind of expanded universe going on. Is that ever a good idea or is it... Um, it, it really depends. Like It depends on everything. So when should a story end? It should end when the initial conflict is resolved. Right. That's when a story should actually end. Um, when are sequels appropriate? Uh, I don't know. It's it's difficult to say. I have a lot of people asking me to write sequels uh, for one of my books, um, which was Muramasa Blood Drinker. Um, and I had not really written it with sequels in mind. Uh, to me, it was kind of like a complete story. But, you know, the characters were alive at the end of it. And they're like, I didn't you know, I wasn't ready to be done with these characters. It's like. Um, I don't know if there's a sequel there. It would be a different story with the same characters. So it'd be a new story with a new conflict with hopefully a new resolution. Um, but there's, a, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff to consider there. I think the main thing um, to consider when it comes to ending uh, anything that is more than like a single unified work, like we're talking about series, um, those sorts of things, it's when there's basically no more steam left in whatever original large conflict you have um that it's either you know you've kind of stalled out like there's nothing there's no other thing to do to resolve the conflict or the conflict's been resolved and you just need to to end it i don't know that's my general opinion on when it should end 
Yes, I agree. It seems like um, with a lot of stories, they try expanding things. They try like basically retelling the story, and it never works. And at least as, as far as I can tell, like um, I thought with Star Wars, for example, those the, the original trilogy it was all part of an existing story, so I felt it was appropriate to tell three of them. Whereas with a story like all the other Star Wars movies, it just didn't work because there really wasn't, it wasn't a big enough universe, at least it kind of surpassed its, um, its kind of art archetypal st- uh, hero story and just went off into, um, basically into oblivion, in my opinion, so it seems like well, w- once you kind of, um, once you kind of finish that, like I said, that one story, if you don't have something better in mind, then what's really the point? Yeah, I um, Star Wars is a really good example because with Star Wars you have um, you have an original trilogy which is different than the original conception of what George Lucas had written. And if um, there's nineteen there's the nineteen seventy five version of Star Wars which you can find the screenplay of. I have a copy of it. And I won't say where I got it, but um, it's around on the internet if you if you're willing to go look for it. And you'll see that the original story was quite different from what ended up getting made for a bunch of different reasons. Um, and, you know, people are like, why is there a second Death Star? Well, what Lucas had originally considered was the Death Star was the last thing. But he didn't think he was going to make more than one movie, so he put it in the first movie. And then you kind of get these, like, death double Death Star bookends. Um, but after the end of that, you have a huge expansion of the, of the media to be, like what we're talking about, a franchise. Um, where you have, like, an Ewoks cartoon. There was a there was a really infamous Christmas special that came out in 1978, I think, um, which everybody should watch once to just experience a, a bit of sadomasochism for something that's really bad with Star Wars. Um, then there were all these books and and video games, and, and um, this is all before, really, the prequel trilogy kind of hit the scene and continued that. Um, and the thing about the expanded universe is it's a bunch of new stories involving old characters and the question you have to answer or the question you have to ask the question that ought to be answered i suppose with that is what is left for those characters to do after the initial conflict that motivated them to do action is resolved um and is there more growth that they need to do is there another large conflict that they need to operate in because in my opinion if if a story like you have something as big as, as a death star like this planet destroying device and uh, once you destroy it, it seems like most of the danger in the galaxy has been pretty much eliminated. Uh, so continuing on from there is not going to have the same sort of dramatic effect as that original story. Um, and the EU is full of actually probably pretty good stories. Um, but what's the point of telling them is the real question. Like, why do we have to tell new stories that might be good, but with old characters and this established universe? And I think people were very interested in the universe of Star Wars. It's its visual appeal. It's um, the way that the you know the culture was organized, the the aliens, um, you know the ideas of the Force, and of course the characters that were involved with it. So the market said we want more of this stuff, and it's really easy to just say, well, if you're willing to pay for it, then so shall you have it. Yeah, pretty much. It's a good point. It seems like people wanted it, but then when they actually got it, it's it wasn't what they wanted. 
but I don't really think there was much they could have done. I remember um, George Lucas said a few years ago, back when um, Episode 7 was announced and they thought he might be working on it, that he wanted a story about rebuilding an empire and or rebuilding a society, and I thought that that was kind of an interesting idea, and then, well... What we got was The Force Awakens, and that was, uh, well, I think we both have the same opinion on that one. So. Yeah, I, I wasn't a fan of Force Awakens. Um, there's a Force Awakens was this really, uh, I mean, like it was a bad combination of things, but it it's like a, a bunch of studio execs sat down and they said, guys, people didn't like that. People didn't like that prequel trilogy. How are we going to fix that? It's like, well, got to understand Star Wars fans. They really like Stormtroopers. Okay, we'll put Stormtroopers in it. They like Death Stars. All right, put Death Star in it. You know, it's like this checklist that everything that was associated with Star Wars at some point kind of all crammed into one movie with no reasoning behind it. You know, it's like, well, we need a big conflict like the Star Killer base. Okay, like, okay, there's other conflicts besides galaxy ending explosions, you know. Exactly. Like, oh, we, everybody liked Han Solo as a um, as a scavenger. Well, let's make him a scavenger again for no again. Reason. Yeah. Yeah. Thus eliminating all the growth. Like, why? What was the point of him having another story? Exactly. If he was just, if there's just not going to be any growth for it. Um. So yeah, I, I I totally see that. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna like temper I'm gonna temper that position a little bit because, um, people are really into, you know, there's certain franchises that people really love. And if there wasn't a profitability behind what you're doing there, then you wouldn't get any stories at all. Like, you wouldn't get anything good at all if there was no way to generate a profit out of it. So, just as, as an example, you know, George Lucas decided, or I mean, he made, he approached the original Star Wars movie as if that was the only Star Wars movie he was going to get to make. And when it was a very huge success, he was asked to make more. A lot of people think that, um, Empire Strikes Back is a really, really good movie. So you wouldn't have got that really, really good movie if the original Star Wars hadn't been a massive success and there hadn't been huge market demand for more Star Wars. So the fact that that people are responding to market demand or that they're like trying to make money is not necessarily a bad thing because if we didn't have some amount of profitability with whatever you're doing, you just wouldn't get it, uh, at least not in the movie business. Uh, maybe in... You know, if you're writing a book all by yourself, um, profitability. I, I mean, I think it's a factor, but it's not. It's not like, um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the main driving force because one person can can make all those creative decisions. Definitely, and yeah, like you said, if, if one person makes a decision of what's good, then how do you actually know it's good? It's just some guy sitting in his basement going, "I'm the best writer on the planet." You know, people just don't understand me, and. It's um so I guess like like prices and um people willing to pay for things does reflect um at least what is good to a degree but there's also just the matter of um what appeals to people's I guess I don't want to say baser instincts but they're more um I don't know, a lot of simplistic things like I talk to a lot of people and they say well I just want to go to a, a turn your brain off movie and you know just you know laugh which there's nothing wrong with but there's also like it doesn't make it a great film like um. I saw some terrible movie recently called um, um, Office Christmas Party, and I thought it was awful. But yeah, everyone <laughs> yeah, in the theater I didn't was, see that one. Yeah, you weren't missing anything. Like, um, but everyone in the theater was laughing. I'm like, well, they're having a good time, so that's good. But objectively, this is a terrible film. So it's like, I guess. Um, now, I, now, what what's interesting is like, there's been you know, there's a 
laughter is a psychological effect, and it's something that can actually be altered psychologically. And one of the things that I think you can actually accomplish, I think you can actually trick audiences into laughing um, at things that aren't necessarily funny by putting things that are set up to be funny around other things that are funny in a situation where you're supposed to laugh. So if you have a comedian come out and tell a couple jokes and they're funny and you're in a club and then they, they, say, they say other things that are novel or provocative, you'll see laughter as a response. You see that sometimes with like political humor. Like Janine Garofalo will go out on stage and call like George W. Bush a Nazi monkey and people will laugh. There's nothing inherently funny about that. Um, but but laughter is the response because of the environment that you're in. So you have a response to whatever stimulus you're having based on that environment. Um, so in some cases, people will laugh at movies that aren't funny. And then they'll, they'll get to the end of it and they'll be like, I guess that wasn't that funny. It's like, well, you laughed a lot in it. It's like, I did, but I don't remember it being that funny. Um, it's just one of those one of those, one of of those those things. That's a good point. It's kind of just their innate reaction to something going on. So I guess that kind of makes sense. One thing I was thinking yeah. about with like the sequels and expanding upon things is the difference between Star Wars and Star Trek, where as Star Wars takes place in a, a single story of fighting of a group of rebels fighting the Empire, Star Trek was about basically people traveling up in and basically an endless universe. So I think for certain types of stories there's more of a growth to that that can happen. Whereas like with Star Wars, I Personally, I just don't think that the universe was big enough for it. I like the archetypal story, but at that point, anything it could be any universe if it's a different story. Yeah, I think honestly, I think Star Wars is a is a, I think that's a really good comparison. I like, you know, I have a lot of affection for both of those um, IPs. Uh, Star Wars, to me, um, although people really love the characters and characters, the the importance of characters can't really be understated because. Oh, of a bunch of reasons, but um, it's about the story. Like the the story has a central conflict between like the rebellion and and the empire, and so once you resolve that conflict, it's like what is there? The whole thing was built upon that conflict. The attitudes of the characters were built around that conflict. The conflict is part of the setting of Star Wars, and that's really what I'm getting to. Is that you know uh, for for Star Trek, the setting is a lot more wide open, and conflict is not necessarily part of that setting. Um, but in Star Wars, conflict is at the core of the setting. It's part of who, what identifies characters as themselves. Am I a stormtrooper? Am I like a rebel soldier? Am I just some schmo on a planet that gets blown up? Um, ultimately, your identity as a character arises from your from your setting. Um, and with Star Wars, there's no way to have a character that has a, a really core identity that's absent that large-scale galactic conflict. So once you remove that, I don't know, you know, to me, it's like there's not that much. I, I enjoyed a lot of the EU stuff, but then it started to be about different parts of the setting that weren't that conflict, like the force and, I don't know, innate evil in people and, I don't know, stuff like that. Uh, but not that main conflict. Whereas Star Trek, because it's episodic, and it was designed to be episodic from the get-go, every single week you had a different story with a different conflict with a different outcome. Um, there wasn't like an overarching conflict. There wasn't a, a, a long-term goal in any Star Trek, um, in any Star Trek series until Deep Space Nine, and that long-term goal only really emerged in the final four seasons of Deep Space Nine, um, and they actually resolved it really well, and into the series. 
Yeah, definitely. Deep Space Nine was a surprisingly really good show. That's like one of the underrated Star Wars series, Star Trek series. I, I think it's both the best and the most underrated. Um, and it's the best because it did all the things. It 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 did all the things that the older Star Trek stuff did, but it also did things that the older Star Trek stuff didn't do at all. Like it didn't. Uh, older Star Trek didn't develop characters the way that they were developed in Deep Space Nine. It didn't have a long-term conflict that you could really like commit to and and want to to turn on that TV every single week and watch. Uh, in a lot of ways, Deep Space Nine was kind of ahead of its time. Um, I think before the, I think streaming has really allowed TV to be not just episodic but to have long-term story arcs. And before that, you couldn't you couldn't really do that very well because you couldn't count on your audience to log in every single week. Um, you knew that they were going to miss a week here or there, whatever it was going to be. So Star Trek was designed to be episodic. Sitcoms were all episodic. There was unless it was a soap opera, there wasn't a lot of like day to day plot of any kind. Pretty much. I always tell people that sitcoms is sitcoms are basically a way of deciding that watching television is your hobby. So <laughs> you have to explain that one to me. I don't. I don't understand that. Basically, like as far as sitcoms go, it's you can tune in whenever, and it's for, at least nowadays it's all basically the same humor. Like a lot, like a lot of people I know really like The Big Bang Theory. I watched a couple episodes and thought it was the same joke over and over again. But basically, just sitting. I know if you like, you sit down to watch like a bunch of sitcoms, like because they're always on like. Uh, TBS and like um, T- I don't think it's TNT anymore. But yeah, like, they're just like playing twenty four seven. Yeah, like I know, I know I've known people who will just sit there and watch them and like they'll laugh. I'm like, okay, you've you've essentially decided that watching television is your hobby because instead of watching the same joke over and over again, you could be doing almost anything. And I'm not knocking yeah. on watching movies or anything, but it's like okay, TV has basically become your hobby at this point. Yeah, if you're just watching watching sitcoms and. You know, sitcoms Sitcoms are designed for, like, a casual audience. They're designed to be tuned in, tuned out. Everything kind of returns to where it was the previous week for the reason that not everyone's going to watch every single week. Um, it's, not nece- it's not really about character growth. You don't see that much character growth on sitcoms. And, in fact, some sitcoms, in fact, most will actively avoid character growth because uh, you establish the characters as some likable static thing and anything that changes that character has the potential to kind of put off and put off watchers and kind of ruin the sort of uh, balance of humor that you create in the first couple of episodes Um, not that you can't i think there's really great comedies that do develop characters but most sitcoms just don't true it's kind of i think one similarity that sitcoms have with a lot of sequels and um unnecessary expanses expansions is they'll have characters that'll get development and then they'll retract on that because you knew the character in one way then they'll have them go through the same character development again and then they'll do this thing where um there is i've seen this in a few tv shows like um how i met your mother did a lot and where it's like i can't believe this character is doing this that's so crazy it's like you mean like they did last season and the season before and the season before it's like are you really just giving them the same character development over and over again and deciding it's character development yeah it's like they well they they uh they make the same mistake do the same flaw and then learn the same lesson and then forget it the next season i think um you have like a, a i call it the joey syndrome 
like Joey from Friends, he's he never developed as a character and he continued to always do the same things wrong over and over again and then just never fix never fix that on the long term. Um, you know, Friends is a Friends is actually a great example of like anti-character development. It's like nothing the characters never changed over 8 years in any significant way. They had the exact same um, they had the exact same flaws they had on like the first episode and they hadn't improved themselves in any way, shape or form whatsoever. It's not that it's a bad show or it's not a funny show, but like no one changed. It's like characters hooked up, characters broke up, characters got married, but like they didn't improve their life. They didn't like fundamentally change something about themselves or like have any kind of, they didn't have any growth. They didn't learn any lessons. That's true. I always thought the show Seinfeld did that pretty well, where none of the characters really grew or developed, but you kind of liked them the way they were just because they weren't exactly good people to begin with. Nor yeah, they, they were kind of anti-heroes, which I dug. I, I thought that was great at the yeah. time. I thought it was really innovative at the time um, to just have characters that uh, aren't aren't good people and aren't even really trying to be good people. They're like actively dishonest, which, you know, most people uh, are dishonest. They're like honest about being dishonest. Um, they're honest about trying to like be lazy. You know, it's it's it was just a really it was a really good uh, mix of things. I felt like. Oh yeah! Now everything tries to copy Seinfeld. Like yeah, you just can't breaking relive. the fourth wall all the time. Yeah, just can't relive that kind of magic with it. One weird example of um, something not having character development that worked really well was um, I thought Back to the Future did that really well. There was really no conflict that. Like some character flaw, flaw that um, Marty had, but it, it worked well with him trying to help other people and just being the character that put you in that universe. And then in the sequel, when they gave him like this, um, I don't know, he reacted weird when somebody called him a chicken and just this ridiculous stuff of um, him getting into an accident. And for some reason, Doc didn't care about that. Like it was. Um, I felt he was better when he didn't have like some kind of gaping character flaw to work on, and that's such a weird concept because you, in almost every other work of fiction I can think of, like there's uh, some kind of growth that they have to learn about themselves. But for some reason, Marty just didn't. And yeah, I think, better that way. I think the only the only growth I can think of for Marty is like there's a there's a part where like someone asks him to race and then he doesn't race him, and then he sees where he would have had the accident, and he's like, oh. Yeah, I'm glad. But he wouldn't have made that if he didn't like have a prescient knowledge of the future. <laughs> so that's not like it's not like he made a good it's like he made a good decision because he had knowledge of the future, which to me is like a little bit different from growing up and learning not to let people bother you. Like he was still bothered by it. Um and I think the character growth in Back to the Future was like, you know, his dad was his dad his dad had to like grow up and fight fight back Biff. You know, and but then of course you go to the future, you go back to the to the like nineteen eighty five, and Biff has instead of Biff becoming a better person, he's collapsed into a subservient nothing, which which I when I'm thinking about it now, I'm like it's kind of bizarre that they would do that. It's like well, if if Biff had gotten stood up to, maybe he would have made some changes in his life and become a better person. You're like, oh, he's a better person. It's like no, he's like a little uh, subservient bitch now. He's not he's not anything better. It was kind of a weird. It's kind of a weird thing to think about now. It was, and then in the sequel, he's um, he's all angry and like yelling at people. I'm like, wasn't this the same cowardly guy from like 
like the last from the end one. of the first one yeah. yeah that was that was all weird but those movies were also there they were never intended to make sequels i i i'm not a huge fan of this second and third one i just they kind of seemed unnecessary to me i like seeing the future and all that but it's some of the stuff in it especially the second one is so ridiculous that you it's obvious they didn't intend to make the film yeah that that well, it wasn't conceived from the from the start uh, and I I agree with you there. Um, they just sort of, well. I mean, they they because they tag you know they they kind of set it up and then they um, I I don't know. I think the third one's kind of the odd one out. I think the second one was was pretty okay, um, but it's very eighties to me in in like a good way. Oh yeah. Um, I have a lot of nostalgia for like seeing their you know the pump the auto inflating sneakers and the auto drying coat. And the, you know, the shark uh, hologram and the hoverboards and all that kind of stuff. And and actually, I mean, this is this is just very much an aside. But when you look at the technology and, you know, the fun thing is that people are always making fun. It's like, oh, you know, we don't have any of the technology that they thought we'd have. It's like we have way better technology in a lot of ways. Our, we have phones that they couldn't even conceive of in 1985 uh, 1985 or 88 or whenever they made the movie like oh people have video phones it's like yeah but it won't be on the wall right it's it's in your pocket um you know they didn't really conceive of this massive thing called the internet that would completely alter you know the need to to fly through the air with cards like what would really be is like you go to 2015 and people are sitting in their in their living room on their computer programming code telecommuting yeah. That would have been like really prescient. Oh yeah. When you think of like flying cars, it's such a bad idea. Like I think every time I think of it, it's like this like a normal car accident, you know, it might be like, you know, a small incident, but I feel like every flying car incident would result in fatality. <laughs> yeah, how how can we make how can we make cars significantly less safe to to a slight advantage in terms of transport? It's like let's make them fly. You know, <laughs> No yeah, it's insurance. really not a good idea. There's no car insurance in the future. Yeah, no one will insure you. It's not possible. It's like it's that it's that period where you're about third of the po- one third of the population dies due to flying car accidents before you invent transporter technology and humanity is able to expand again. Pretty much. One thing I notice in a lot of sequels is they'll add a lot of unnecessary characters like in a lot of really great films you'll have a really tight-knit group of characters who you kind of you learn about you get to know then they'll add these other ones that are only important because the other characters like them like um well i was i felt that about ray in the force awakens like half of han solo's lines are just saying that he approves of the of her i approve of you i like you exactly like like, you should be my apprentice Oh my god, it was so terrible, but it's like, oh, well, thank you, Han Solo. Thank you for approving of this character. I guess well, they, I have they, to like her now. Uh, I hated that device right there because it's like they had to do that to let you know that you were supposed to approve of Ray. It's like, we'll have the character that they are, that the audience already likes tell you to like this character so that you'll like her. It's like, rather than having her demonstrate any kind of virtue whatsoever. Like, Ray has no virtue. You know, when you, I mean, you just think about it. Like, where did she demonstrate virtue? She really never demonstrated virtue ever see that the, I can think of off the top of my head. See that weird moment where she touched the uh, lightsaber and then she then runs out. away, yeah. right? 
it's like after like after telling Finn, you know, you have to you have to fight, and she's like, I can't deal with this. Like, wait, what? Like, you you can still one eighty in like literally thirty seconds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then it's it just like, well, the the idea is like people don't think about you liking characters because they are virtuous. Now, now in in movies, it's all just sort of like um, trying to trying to touch on pre existing emotional conditions to make you like someone. So instead of instead of making Ray virtuous and therefore likable, um, the way that say Obi Wan Kenobi was or something, or even even Luke, you know, Luke doesn't start out as virtuous, but he gains virtue as the story goes on. And Han Solo definitely gains a huge amount of virtue as the story goes on. Um, so rather than having them exhibit any kind of virtue, they just like will touch a, touch a thing that will just have an emotional effect on anyone. It's like, oh my gosh, she's scared. It's like, well, I'm scared sometimes, so I can identify with that. It's it's like a fake kind of empathy response rather than displaying any kind of character that that you're you're interested in in um, because of their their qualities as as human beings. Um, it's, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's and it, you can see that in Marvel movies too. Oh, um, yeah. Rather than having like a build up, a real emotional build up where you care about what's happening, they'll have like a very isolated scene with like a child dying, or like they'll have like in in um, what was the last Captain America movie? Um, Civil War. Civil War yeah. They had this woman come up to um, come up to Iron Man and and bitch at him because her son died when he was saving the world. And so Iron Man has this emotional crisis because this woman handed him a picture and called him an asshole. And it's like, uh, no, you know, if if I were Iron Man and someone did that, it'd be like, it'd be like, your son died so that I could save the entire world. You should be proud of that, because right now you'd be dead if I if he if I hadn't done all these things, your son would be dead. So like, no reasonable human being would have like a, a just completely abandon their sh- their like certainty of what they did in terms of virtue to feel bad about someone but because we you know everybody's like a most people are parents or they have kids or they have brothers and so they immediately empathize with oh yeah this collateral damage this you know he killed an innocent person on accident um to try to just sort of touch a pre-existing like emotional pathway in lieu of actually establishing any kind of need for the character to feel that that happens in a lot of superhero films, I notice, where it's like, did they not realize that people were getting killed when the buildings were falling apart? Like, of course people died. Like, And then they're like, oh, you know, I, I saw a mother and a child. Like, They did that in um, that Batman versus Superman movie where Batman's like watching as the buildings are falling. It's like, people are dying. It's like, yes, but more people are going to die if, he, if Superman doesn't stop him. And you'd have to be a moron not to realize that. But that was supposed to spark their feud. And it's like, are you kidding me? Come on. Like, this isn't how real people would react. Like, it's like, believe it or not, oh, real yeah. people can use logic and common sense for the most part. Like, yeah, or, or you know, maybe you have an emotional reaction in the moment. Then you have the rest of the day to stop and reflect on that and probably come to a better decision. So you might like be like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry that I killed your son. I feel so bad. And you go back in the room and you think about it and you're like, is what I did really right? And then you're like, let's see, I saved the world and I can't redo history. So I have to just accept that um, – I, I had to do what was right in the moment, and any mistakes that happened as a result of that, I can't undo. So I, there's no point in me feeling guilty guilty about it. That's like a normal, well-adjusted person, like going on from from something like that. And you know, I could if you talk to someone that was like in World War II and like dropped bombs on civilians, um, 
they they don't have like ongoing psychic crisis from that because they they've had years and not just days but like years to resolve that psychic conflict um within themselves so that they they don't wake up every day feeling guilty and, and bad like my grandfather like flew over hiroshima and uh he doesn't feel bad about hiroshima it was like with something we had to do at the time and it was the mission and you know that's it. You've resolved. You've resolved the conflict because it's what's what's psychically necessary. Um, so yeah, I didn't like that setup. But it, but movies are full of those little things now, uh, and I think it's actually. Uh, while I'm let me pontificate, I think it's actually due to the, the current trend in editing that's been going on over the last twenty years, which is to edit movies a lot tighter um, rather than give them space for characters to talk or express themselves or reflect or do anything like that. So um, in order to get all the action and all the plot and all the uh, all those little moments packed into a two-hour movie, you have to strip out the opportunity for any kind of real dialogue. And then you replace it with like those little moments because they they have the effect. And by the time you realize that you you just had somebody, you know, if showing someone like a child having their skin burned off or something, it's going to have an emotional effect on anyone. But by the time that someone would reflect on that, you're already stimulating them with more explosions. And they just don't really remember uh, the, the sort of trick that you try to play on them with with the super tight editing. So anyway, that's my pontification on that. Interesting. I never really thought of it that way, but that makes a lot of sense. It's like um, I think of um, like Alfred Hitchcock films where he was really good at developing characters like with actual issues. And yeah, Hitchcock's great. He he had a great saying that was like the you know the terror is not in the bang, it's in the anticipation. Uh, of the bang so there's uh, been a replacement of the of the uh, anxiousness the the tension of of something being unresolved and unknown you replace that with just stimulation things exploding uh, and hope that people don't really feel the difference because they're excited when they see you know starships flying around blowing each other up um whereas those things are not mutually exclusive though like i did a did a couple videos on this a while back. If you watch the original Death Star attack from 1977 Star Wars, there's a huge amount of tension in it. It's not just action. There's a huge amount of uncertainty of the outcome of this. They take 15 minutes to attack this Death Star. You have a bunch of time to see, you know, a ship explodes and there's a shot of Luke reacting and feeling scared. You know, you you have a lot of tension in the story, not just not just lasers. You know, definitely. Here's something I've noticed in a lot of movies, and it seems to happen more and more in sequels. Like, um, even think about Marvel films. Like, I, I liked the original um, Iron Man movie, and I hated the second one because it seemed like they were trying to throw in as many funny lines or quote unquote funny lines in like every scene as they possibly could. So people are talking over each other. They're like just saying things that don't make sense. It's like just to throw in a, like another joke and another joke. It's so another one liner. Yeah, just yeah. throwing all the one liners in lieu of like. And I also they they also do a thing with Disney movies, uh, not just Marvel but also the Star Wars movies. They have dialogue that's that's functional dialogue, and that doesn't sound like a bad thing. Um, but it's like uh, when you have a functional dialogue, you're just sort of telling the audience something, right? Yeah. You know, you have Poe Dameron flying down to the to the base, and he's like, "When the sun goes out, it will fire." So we are, have a limited amount of time. It's like we gathered that from the from watching the previous scenes, but they have to kind of spell it out because if they if they hadn't if they'd actually taken time to really let you know the stakes that were at play, 
um, the movie would have been five minutes longer and you would have gotten one less showing in for the day and you would have made that much less money. Pretty much. It reminds me of, um, like, speaking of, like, bad dialogue, I think of the Purge movies where um, there's so many lines in those movies <laughs> where they tell you what the theme of the movie is, where there'll be, there'll be like, a bunch of um, people like, well, people like us don't survive the Purge because it's all intended to, like, keep us down. I'm like, okay, that was the most unsubtle line I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, don't don't say it, show it. <laughs> exactly. Well, showing it takes time. We'll just say it, and then we'll just have some more, more fighting robots or something. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely see that a lot. Um, one of the things, well, I'm thinking about franchises or, or series too. One of the things that I think makes them go downhill over time is that, like you mentioned, they just add extra characters on. You have to find th- you have to find a reason for someone to keep watching more of this stuff. And if you if you develop a character, eventually they get to a point where like they're pretty much a paragon. There's nothing else for them to do. So you have to add some more characters in to like have some development and some more characters in to have some development until you get to like Captain America Civil War where like Captain, it's not even Captain America movie. Like Captain America is not even, he's like barely the main character just by like a, just a hair uh, because it's just, there's, Oh, here's, here's the black Panther and here's Ant-Man and here's this, you know, there's, there's so many characters uh, because we don't really have that much for, for Captain America to do. In his like third movie, I don't know. I don't know what you have him do. And they're always finding like weird conflicts between each other. Like their personalities don't click, and then it's like this big thing. It's like, okay, can't they just like not be friends and just like be like, all right, well, this guy's not really my kind of like person to hang out with. But you know, we can work side by side. It's like, no, every little thing like has to come up and has to be a big thing. It's like, come on, do re- people really react like that? You're supposed to be this like beacon of morality and yet like you're yeah you're supposed to be a paragon you're supposed to have virtue exactly you know i think and and i actually think those first couple uh, iron man movies at least the first one there's a huge amount of growth that um the iron man character does in terms of gaining virtue and gaining perspective and becoming a better person but after that it's like he's just he's just sort of acting in things then they have to like throw some guilt onto him throw an anxiety disorder onto him so that so that we can still have him hopefully develop like a little bit pretty much i remember like after the first one i'm like yeah he's not such a bad guy then i watch the second one i'm like he's just kind of an asshole like i i don't like this guy anymore he like he's just he's arrogant he's mean he's just he he like wrecks things that other people are doing just to get attention it's like oh but he's dying i'm like oh yeah i've never seen that cop out before it's like come on like yeah yeah um so another thing i think about about why franchises go downhill so um the reason that they keep making things is because market the market demands it and what i think people are more attached to are characters than they are to the to the plot to the stories and the conflict themselves right um because the the conflict the story that has a definite end and you have to kind of you have to kind of tie things off but if you look at like uh tv series you have those characters continue on at a certain point they don't have any more there's nothing else for them to really do so you have to i don't know you got to be extremely creative it's really rare that you have like a breaking bad where you have a character go all the way through an entire character arc and finish at a certain point and then the series ends um most of the time it's more like walking dead where it's like people go through arcs and then they just start of start their characters start wandering around in terms of 
development or their attitude or who they are. And then people start to think that the series is sucking because the characters are changing in ways that we don't like. It's like, well, we had to do something. What do we do? We have to keep this going so we can make money. <laughs> and they'll kill off characters, add new ones. And it's like, okay, um, who is this again? Um, yeah, and after a while, it's just like a soap opera. You know, if you keep it going long enough, it's it's indistinguishable from a soap opera except in its setting. You know, its format, it becomes, a you know, The Walking Dead became like a, a soap opera with zombies as a setting <laughs> oh, after yeah. a certain point. It's um, kind of like, it's weird. Like, I don't, I'm trying to figure out how a, how a series like can really go on for that long and be good. I don't, I don't know if it's possible. Like you said with Breaking Bad, it's like, it was five seasons and it, like, they, I think originally they wanted it to be six, but um, the creator said like, no, it's, if I drag it on more, it's going to, it's going to ruin it's gonna it. It's going to be, well, I think there's a really good, and I'm going to look at a sitcom, even though it has nothing to do with Breaking Bad, but if you look at How I Met Your Mother, they had originally planned for it to be a uh, way less seasons than it was, like five or six seasons instead of, I don't remember how how many got to, like nine? Something like that. A lot. Um, and people hated the last episode of How I Met Your Mother, but they had conceived of that last episode way back at the beginning of the show. Like way back when they started the show, they knew that that was going to be the ending. But the show became unexpectedly popular, so they drug it out for another three or four seasons and made people care about characters that they originally didn't really in intend to develop the way that they did. So when they had the actual last episode, um, people were really upset about it. Um, and that was because like the the arc that they had planned had ended like four seasons prior, and they would, had just been trying to find new stuff to do. Pretty much, yeah. I was actually having a conversation about that with my sister yesterday. She, I was, she was talking about how much she hated the last episode because when they finally revealed who um, his wife was, it's like then they had her die. I'm like, well, really at that point, what else can they do? I mean, she's not going to be a character in the last like two episodes or even the last season. Like, so it has to be just some person. Like, you're not going to be yeah. able to make it anyone. And it wouldn't have had that negative impact if they'd had it at the end of season five, and that had been the end of the end of the show. Uh, because you always, if you go back and look at that point in the series, you were heavily invested in. I'm trying to remember the name of the character, um, the girl. You know, they, they had like this on again, off again oh, thing. You were heavily invested in him being with her. And so, if they had done that revelation, he'd come back and he finally got to be with her at the end, even though he married someone else. That's that would have been satisfying back at like the fifth season. But they're like, hey, guys, you can't just end the series. We're making millions of bucks. So um, let's do some more series. We'll have we'll have these two characters get together and and we'll have them be really good and people really like it. And then we'll just have them get divorced in the last episode. <laughs> you know, it's like people got really upset about that, too. It's like, wait a minute. Why did they just get divorced? I don't understand. <laughs> like, well, that it had all been planned from the get go. Pretty much. Yeah. Like, um. There was um the show Scrubs kind of did that with um the the romance between um JD and Elliot like they resolved that they're like yeah we're never gonna they're never gonna get together they've 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 um decided how their relationship is gonna be then they had them get together in the end anyways I'm like but you resolved this like six times like you can't just do that well yeah I I actually so Scrubs is another really good example to look at um because I think that that. Those final that final season, which was I think actually on NBC, they switched networks on the show at some point. 
um, was really about everyone that was involved with the show tying it up and giving the audience what they what they had wanted, which was like um, JD has has his and the characters actually really grow a lot in Scrubs. Scrubs is a really good show for a lot of reasons, but yeah, yeah. the characters grow and change. They gain virtue. They become better people. They they overcome their shortcomings. Um, every every single one of them, every character becomes a better person by the end of the end of the series and has learned new things you have people go from from incompetent interns to being experts in their field over time and you believe it because it's a it's like this slow process um and yeah that last season was about it was really about trying to tie up all that thing even though they had like new characters you didn't really care about um they did a lot of things wrong in the last uh, i mean there's actually two last seasons there's a there's the real last season and then they had a ninth season, I think, that was originally not intended to be Scrubs at all. It was going to be like Scrubs, the new class, was what it was originally called, I think. Uh, and it was going to focus on new characters, but the same kind of show format. But the the you know the studio execs were like, no one's going to watch it unless it's got all the old characters in it. So they they paid like John C. McGinley and them to come back and and be their old characters for like half an episode, a couple times, you know. Um, but anyway, the the thing that I think is also interesting to look at at Scrubs is there's a feeling that like Scrubs started to have declining quality at a certain point. And I think that there's some really good market reasons for that. But most people don't think about it. So, if you have a if you have a show that's successful, there's a bunch of stuff that goes into the success. Uh, and as it becomes more successful, it becomes more profitable. As it becomes more profitable, the people who are creating it are going to want to negotiate for higher pay because they're generating a lot more money for the studio. So they're rightfully going to going to say like you should pay us more money. Um, now there's certain people that you can replace and certain people you can't replace and maintain the profitability of a show. With Scrubs, you couldn't replace any of the actors. Uh, you can't replace the actors. The actors are the face of a of a visual medium like a show, a TV show or a movie. Um, so you can't replace the actors, and really rarely has any sitcom successfully replaced an actor. Um, more often, it's that that a minor character might get replaced, or like you just have that character disappear when the when the actor wants too much money, like they did in Home Improvement. They had Jonathan Taylor Thomas just like go off to college or something, and just he he just wasn't in the show anymore. Um, so you can't replace the actors. So the actors get to negotiate for higher pay. But you still want to make as much money as possible. So the first thing that starts to happen, and you saw this with Scrubs, is the writers start to leave. The writers, nobody even knows them. Their, their name's up for half a second on any given episode. So the audience doesn't even know who the writers are and doesn't even really care. But the writers are what create the show and what creates the quality of the show because they write the dialogue and they write the stories. Um. So as that show becomes more profitable, you're not going to want to pay the writers that more. But the writers themselves can generate a lot more value going somewhere else because they have written on a successful show. So maybe they're in the writing room for Scrubs and getting paid like 35 grand a year, which in L.A. is nothing. But that's what they pay writers, just so you know. Right. Yeah. Um, so and, 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 and I know because yeah, I've been involved in that business uh, kind of on the outside, but. Um, you know, writing rooms, they don't generate a lot of money. You're not working all year long either. 
but you write a couple episodes and then it becomes a hit and then you're like, okay, well, I want you to pay me $35,000 per episode, not $35,000 per season. And they're like, kick rocks. And so you just go work at another show for $100,000 a season. Um, so the writers start to sort of abandon ship. And you saw that with Scrubs is that one writer, one writer would start to leave, then another writer would start to leave until most of the writers of the show had left um, by like the sixth season. And that then you're replacing them with people who probably if they're not they may not be as high quality but they're not the people who generated those characters and generated those stories so it's going to have a different feel because you have a different creative person creating the 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 story and so then there's this sort of declining quality that's the that's why it's like well why does a show become successful and then the quality decline? I think it's because you end up ha having a lot of writers leave. I think that's the main reason. As well as the stuff we, are, we, we already talked about. The fact that you run out of stuff to do with the characters. Um, you end up milking things beyond when they're supposed to be actually finished. You run out of conflict. You have to start manufacturing unbelievable conflict. I think a, a big part of that also is that the writers are gone. So the people who really created what the show is, who are the most easily replaced, have been gone. Definitely. That happened with the show Community. They um, fired the head writer, Dan Harmon, and the fourth season was just awful because it was... They couldn't capture the same kind of, like, style of the show, and it was a very unique, unique show in the way, in the way it was written. It was um, kind of subversive humor, and I guess none of the other writers could quite pull it off. It was very artificial. And then they brought him back, but so much had happened. A um, bunch of characters ended up leaving that it just fell apart. And they had one more season, and they just they're like, "Yeah, we have to end this. It's it's not working out." Well, I mean, I I um, I actually tried to get a writing group job for a Community a couple of years ago, and every single year when I talked to like producers, they were like shocked that the show got renewed again. They're like, "Somehow Community's having another season." It's like we should get you this writing room job. I'm like. I'm like, oh, I, I, I had no idea that they were even going to continue making that show. It just, it just seemed like it was crumbling, and they made like, th I don't know how many extra seasons they made after, uh, after that. But um, there was always this perception that it's like, what? They renewed it? <laughs> Wait, they renewed that show? You yeah, remember hearing that people would like um, per would um, be outside these studios like demanding another season, and like it was a really good show, but. Well, that was another one where I, once Dan Harmon left, they there was something wrong with it. Like they were trying so hard. Like I think the beginning of season four, like they're all wearing like hipster glasses and like, oh, it's a joke, you know, you get it. It's like, oh, it's like, yeah, that that's not working, guys. <laughs> yeah, I think you you also see some of the same thing with Futurama after it came after it went to Comedy Central. Um, you didn't get. Uh, you didn't get all the same writers back. You got like you, um, David X. Cohen came back, but Matt Groening wasn't really working on the show. You know, you you didn't have a lot of the the writers sort of return to that, and you just sort of assemble what you what you can do. And it doesn't it's it's not even so much that like the quality is bad. It's just that you, it's different. It's not it's not the same, and people can pick up on that even subtly. The humor is not quite the same. Every person has a little bit different take on humor. Uh, I'm going to write different jokes than somebody else. And so if you replace me with someone else who may be a good joke writer, people may not like the show because the jokes aren't the same. Pretty much. And then the writers go on to make something else, and then suddenly that's pretty successful. And it's like, hmm, I wonder what's going on there. There seems to be a, a consistent pattern. 
Yeah, good writers create good shows, and that's I think that's part of the problem is that um, you start to lose and and um, I don't know. You, it's it's probably the case in almost anything that has like a long running a long running thing is that um, as you lose the the creative people who create who who have made the thing what it is, uh, it loses the flavor that it has. Like if we look at I don't know the, the prequel trilogy didn't have the same designers involved as with the original Star Wars trilogy. And so it looked and felt differently. And people are like, this doesn't feel like Star Wars to me. It's a, it's a lot of little things, I think, that add up to that to that perception. Makes sense. It's like um, once you have something where all the pieces kind of fit together, it's like you really shouldn't mess with it too much because just one slight change will at least like throw it off, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and a little changes you may not pick up on, but like when there's a lot of pieces that are different, that's why Episode Seven felt so hollow. It felt completely different than all the other movies because George Lucas wasn't involved. It's like, oh well, we have Han Solo in it. We have like we have these old actors that are in it. It's like old actors do not for do not make for the feeling of Star Wars, for me at least. Yeah. You know, it's like okay, great, I see Harrison Ford there. However, none of this feels like it it's like they it's like they just stripped off the top aesthetic layer of star wars and pasted it onto like a movie and hoped that people would then perceive it as star wars that's exactly it i would have actually um liked force awakens a little better if they hadn't had um leia and han in it just because especially the way they killed han where he was basically just there to die so that like yeah. give everyone else there it's like after all we've seen of him it's like they couldn't have even given him like a moment where he reflected on everything that all that had happened in the past, like who he was as a character or just something like it's, it was just so, I thought it was really disrespectful to his character. Yeah. I, I mean, I think so too. I think it was, I mean, it's disrespectful to, I think the entire thing was really disrespectful to the history of star Wars and to all the things that developed after the original trilogy, you know, the extended universe as well, all that creative input that went into that, that all the conflict that was resolved at the end of Return of the Jedi, they just are like, well, that was a conflict people liked, so let's resurrect it. It's like, I, I'm not interested in that old conflict. You know, I have no, I have no attachment to that because it's been resolved. Uh, at least the prequel trilogy had new conflict. It had something new going on that was different from um, we have to, we have to blow up the Empire. Oh yeah. I always like, even though I, I really didn't like the prequels, I like I found after Force Awakens came out, like I'm defending these movies so much. Yeah. Because... Oh, I mean, they, they I, I like them better after Force Awakens because I can see I can see past their flaws to see what, what's good about them. Um, and I because I, you know, whatever emotional attachment I had to Star Wars has been just kind of removed through what uh, what Disney's done with it. Um, so I go back and I can look at the prequels a lot more objectively and see what's good and what's bad about them. And I know what's bad about them, and um, I'm, sh I'm sure I'll do videos at some point on everything that's wrong with those. Uh, but at the heart of the prequels, I think that there's a really good plot and a really good story, uh, but I think it's been badly executed for, like, a multitude of reasons. Um, the biggest one is horrible casting decisions for a lot of main characters. They, they And then, uh, you know, if you give a bad character bad dialogue... Uh, it's not gonna be good. Oh yeah, it's like um, the the, the or prequel, bad actor, bad dialogue. Sorry. Yeah. The prequels were movies where if you changed a few things about it, it could have been they could have been decent movies. 
Force Awakens just should have not been made because it was just a cash cow. It was just a, well, we know, it's like, I know Star Wars, guys. I watched the movies. I could totally write one of these. It's like, no, you, you can't. Like, Yeah, I mean, um, I I wouldn't even bother. Like, I, I wouldn't have any particular, my only interest in writing a Star Wars movie would be the paycheck. And the reason for that is because I have my own ideas that I would rather write from a creative perspective, you know, as a creative individual, I have my own sci-fi universe that I, that I write books in. I don't, I don't need to write a star Wars story that doesn't, it's not going to have the same creative, um, I don't know, satisfaction to me as if I create my own, um, I would do it for the, I would do it for the money. Um, and maybe, maybe that's what everyone did it for. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise me. But even when you look at like a guy like George Lucas, like he made, um, American Graffiti made the um, Indiana Jones uh, uh, movies, at least the original three, and he kind of he he makes things that are outside of Star Wars. Whereas I feel with um, I'm, I may be completely wrong with this, but I feel like J.J. Abrams, at least from the movies I've seen him make, they were kind of existing things that he just kind of made more of, and like he made the um, the new the Star, Star Trek, Trek movies, eight um, millimeter, like, uh, I thought. Was good. I think I remember liking that one. I don't think I saw that one. Um, I saw Super Eight, which was um, Super Eight. That's what I'm thinking of. Eight millimeters of eight millimeters of Nicolas Cage snuff movie thing. Um, sorry, Sh- really shouldn't get those two confused. <laughs> A little bit different. <laughs> Listen, kids, I wa- I rented eight millimeter for us to watch. <laughs> Let's sit down as a family and watch eight millimeter together. This is a great J.J. Abrams movie. Let's put it in. Like first scene is like rape and blood, and you're like, kids. Let's forget that we put this in the player. Oh man, it's probably happened to some family out there. <laughs> yeah, so I remember. So you know, J.J. Abrams. I don't think like I don't know. Uh, I can't judge his entire talent level. Um, I don't like Force Awakens, and uh, I only kind of liked the first Star Trek movie. Um, and I didn't really like it very much. It, it was it was. It was exciting that there was more Star Trek. When I look back on it, I'm like, I was excited that they made another Star Trek movie more than I was actually excited about the movie. Most of the movie was like what we got with Force Awakens. Fan service and um, explosions. Pretty much. You know, much, you get yeah. fan service and explosions and pe- people are supposed to like it, right? And then we got the second one, Into Darkness, and it was just a mess. Um, let's inject him with super blood. It's like, guys... Did you not think that this anyone would think this was stupid? He's yelling con. It's like, oh, I get it, because um, it was the opposite way in the original one. Oh, that's super cool. Oh, I knew that was going to happen. I knew they were going to do that. It's like fans. It's just fan service and explosions. Um, but it got him the star. It got him the Star Wars gig, which is the gig that he really wanted. And then. You know, I don't think Force Awakens was good, but I think there's other people who really liked it for the same reason. I think the studio saw it and it's like, what we need is fan service and explosions. That's what's going to make a movie that's going to make us a lot of money. Um, it's not going to be a movie that's going to stand the test of time, but that's not what's important. Uh, and even then, uh, I can I, I made a I made a video recently. Why do why, why does modern cinema suck? And the more money that you spend on a movie, the more you have to hedge your bet on that movie the less risks you were allowed to take. And this is a psychological phenomenon. If you hand someone five, if you just have someone a hundred dollars or you, let's, 
I don't know. You hand someone five dollars and have them sit down at a blackjack table, they'll bet the entire five dollars. If you hand someone five thousand dollars and sit them down at a blackjack table, all of a sudden you'll see them betting ten, twenty dollars, fifty dollars, a hundred dollars. They'll never bet five thousand dollars on a single hand because the the loss is great. Five dollars, the loss is minimal. So when you get to a two hundred million dollar movie, you're going to do anything and everything to make sure you at least make your cost back. So yes, less return, but also less risk because the amount of money that you're investing is enormous. It may have been two hundred million dollars to make Force Awakens. It's probably half a billion once you include all the all the marketing and and all that kind of stuff that went into it. And then the gross is not what you get back as a studio. You know, the gross is what everyone makes on it, including the movie theaters. So you got to make a lot of money back on that $200 million movie to, to, to pay for it. So you're going to put in as much fan service as you can. You get as much reason for people to go to that movie theater as possible. Make it as, mu- as many explosions as possible. Make it as loud as possible. Um, and if you have to cut plot out, if you have to cut good, cut good storytelling out of it, if you have to cut the good things out of movies to, to make another dollar or to lower your risk, then you're going to do it. Pretty much, yeah. Especially when you have, um, when you have like a lot of investors like who put their money into it because it's like they they're going to want their money back. So it's like not just your project anymore. It's uh, oh, all these other ones. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a business, and and like I said, I, I temper that perspective. If you didn't have those investors, you wouldn't have a movie. Yeah. So there'd be no movie. It wouldn't just be like, oh, Force Awakens sucks. It's like, if somebody hadn't put up the money, there would have been no Star Wars movie. And uh, maybe that would have been a good thing. But uh, somebody had to at least take a risk with the initial Star Wars. Um, so if there was nobody willing to make money in this business, we wouldn't get movies, even B-movies. right? Yeah. B-movies are like a, a, about targeting a special special market, have a low cost and a high rate of return and even higher risk. But when you're only betting $500,000, and I know only $500,000, but if you're only betting $500,000 and you lose it, if there's one firm that has a lot of capital, they may make, if they make a $500,000 movie and it's kind of a hit and they make $5 million on it, that's a, you know, that's a huge gain. So the smaller the risk is, the more potential for like gigantic gain you have compared to your investment um, when you get to those lower budget movies. That's true, and especially like when you talk about like B movies and like like amateur filmmakers is since no one really knows who they are, if they make a bad movie, that's gonna that's that's gonna follow them around for a long time. Like I think that if uh, Tommy was so made like a great film, he'd still people would still remember him as the guy who made The Room. So it's like oh yeah yeah oh for sure, um, but I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, I'm not sure how much things follow people around. Um, I think if you make something that's quality, even if something you made in the past is not super high quality, if people have an ability have a have an ability to gain some confidence on that, they might be willing to watch it or, or spend money on it. it. It just really depends on um, how you're able to, to queue in that market. That's true. Like you look at um, M Night Shyamalan, who's still making movies, even though he's like. Everyone knows him as that guy who makes terrible movies with stupid twists, but he made yeah, a couple good ones. So I guess he that's made a couple gonna... good ones. And they, you know the ones, some of the ones that people hate, I think are good. I thought The Village was actually a really good movie. Um, I think people didn't like it because they had a, an intellectually disabled character as like a villain, and uh, that just rubbed people wrong. <laughs> but I, I liked The Village. I actually thought Signs wasn't too bad. Like I thought what they were 
when I kind of figured out what was the main theme of the film, like, okay, this isn't bad. There's a lot of kind of dumb things in it, but it's overall not a bad film. There's some really great scenes with that between the guy and his family. So, Yeah, I thought Signs was well-written. Um, I thought the aliens looked bad, but whatever. Yeah. Um, it's, not, it's not about seeing the alien. It's about being afraid when you see a hint of an alien. So even though that this, you know, when we see the alien, you're like, well, that looks stupid. Um, it didn't, didn't change the emotional effect we had building up to seeing the alien. Pretty much. Plus like the word, the name signs, I think was supposed to be like, this has have multiple meanings, like signs and signs of aliens, yeah. signs from above signs from, um, it was like signs in general. And I thought that just the way they've kind of followed around the family was very good. I really liked the scene where they're having dinner and, um, they're fighting and then they kind of hug. It was very natural and very well done. Yeah, I think I, you know, I think uh, M Night Shyamalan has uh, plenty of talent as a filmmaker. I think, I think he's taken on a lot of projects that, frankly, were either out of his league or just don't fit his skill set at all. Like, uh, what was the what was the one last Airbender? Oh God, that was yeah. That like everyone, it's like universally reviled, and I've actually never watched it because it, I just saw it was a Nickelodeon movie, and I'm, I didn't even realize that M Night Shyamalan had made it, or I might have gone to see it just just out of like morbid curiosity. But like, it's pretty much hated. It's like a hated movie by everyone involved. Um, but why was he making that movie? Is the question, right? Give him money um, to do it. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't record rap albums. Like, why would I even try that? I, I'm not so arrogant as to think that I can like start recording things I've never heard before. Like, I'm gonna go record some African djembe music. I'm smart. No, I'll do the stuff I know. Yeah, I'll do a class just, album. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, at that point, you're just kind of like trying to make yourself more diverse and if you don't have a good plan with it you're just gonna make yourself look like an ass like uh kevin smith did it too in um what was the movie cop out um that he quote directed um so like you know kevin smith is actually not a very good director as no. far as like most things go and he kind of did cop out to prove that he could do an action movie and it didn't come out very good um, so it's kind of like Kevin. You should have stuck to making the films that you already that we already knew that you were good at. And it's sometimes you got to I don't know. Sometimes you got to test your limits. But a lot of times, um, directors kind of step outside, step outside the realm of expertise. Yeah, I feel like but, Kevin Smith kind of he had a he was really good at certain type of film, and then when he moved away from that, like even with his like view askew movies as they went down, like and he got bigger and bigger budgets it's like it lost a lot of the charm because the characters weren't really realistic anymore yeah you, and you weren't focusing on the characters the same way anymore um clerks is not good because it's good because the characters and the and the dialogue between them is good that's why clerks is good there's no other there's no other reason right like the story's not profound or anything in fact the story is almost meaningless and and pointless could have taken place literally anywhere yeah yeah it's just about it's really well written dialogue with really particular characters that people really attach themselves to that's what made clerks good oh yeah uh, yeah and his view skew has gone on uh, i remember i remember watching dogma and just being like completely blown away with how bad i thought it was 
I hated that film. Like the whole time, <laughs> I'm thinking this is Kevin Smith getting a a huge budget and be like, I'm gonna add all these a- these famous actors. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do that. Yeah, Alan Rickman was in it. Uh, and Alan Rickman showing like a blank crotch somewhere in the movie. You know, um, he had a yeah, I do. He had everyone in that movie, and it was just um, I, I guess I don't know. You ha- he's like, well, I have to do something different. And I remember this this thing's like, well, this movie is just about ideas. I'm like, your ideas are stupid. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> you know, if I, it should have been like someone handed me the script, and it'd be like, okay, well, let's, um, you know, maybe maybe we can run this through like a you know like a little test group, and and people would be like, this is really offensive and stupid, and then they probably just wouldn't have made the movie. It felt like a lot of that film was, like, he's trying to be offensive and edgy. It's like, the other ones were, I guess some people could consider them, like, you know, kind of, like, subversive. Well, they're obviously subversive because, like, the characters aren't heroes. They're just kind of um, slackers kind of trying to find their way. But that one, it's like, okay, I'm going to make it, like, I'm going to try to, like, have have a meaning in it, but not really. And then just kind of, like, have a bunch of bullshit in it. Yeah, I think that that was like the crossover. Now, Jane Silent Bob Strike Back was funny because it was just nonsense. It was kind of like a cult, totally cult style. There was no real sense of great story or anything. Everything, even the story was a joke in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. But that's part of what made it really great. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, like, yeah, Dogma, I was just like, I remember watching it. And I'm like, this movie is bad. It, it's kind of like, and I'm trying to think of a, of a good way of, of thinking about it. This is something that Hollywood does a lot. You mentioned like subversive, right? Like movies, the the Kevin Smith movies he made prior to that, they were kind of subversive and just challenging, I don't know, maybe conservative ideas or something like that. But they didn't do it from a perspective like they knew more than you about any given thing. It was about whatever that character was going through. So when you see Dogma and they're trying to tackle like religious ideas, it's a really bad idea if you don't understand what you're talking about. Chances are you're either going to offend people, you're going to come off looking stupid because you don't know what you're talking about, or um, people are going to be bored and not know what you're talking about. So it's not it's not like a good topic. It's not it's not a good place to go to for a movie at least. Um, and I saw it with uh, what was the movie? Oh, uh, Sausage Party. Oh, so I went yeah. and saw Sausage I, Party I saw last year. That one. I, I didn't see it, but I'm like, yeah, this sounds like what I thought it was going to be. It's it's not good. Like there are laughs. I don't want to say it's all bad. There are definitely some laughs, but um, it's one of those things where they try to do racial and religious humor, and it doesn't come off well. Not because it's like particularly offensive, but it reveals the like gaping horrible ignorance of the filmmakers that like they didn't. They literally didn't know what they were talking about. So just as an example, and then there's also like real. It's actually really racist against pretty much black people and everyone um but like the you know they have the they have this middle eastern character who's he's always talking about dipping he's like a flatbread right um he's a lavash but he's an armenian flatbed flatbread armenians are not muslims they don't have any kind of mythos about going to heaven and dipping their flaps in 72 bottles of virgin olive oil so like right away you pick something that you think is middle eastern but is actually mediterranean revealing that you're a colossal idiot and then you assign to it like racist humor. Um, and I don't know. I think people I don't, they get away with this racist humor. Like if a conservative were to make that kind of that kind of humor, uh, they'd be they would be like wanting people would want to burn them at the stake is what I think. 
So it's like, a, I don't know how he got away with this in Hollywood, like hyper-liberal Hollywood, but anyway, he did. Uh, and it just kind of revealed, like, the ignorance. They were like, oh, we'll have a, a Jewish bagel. It's like, bagels are Polish. They're not, like, specifically Jewish or anything oh, yeah. like that. Um, you have a black character that's a box of grits raping a box of white crackers at the end of the movie. Wow, that's that's not even funny. She's raping. Stupid. It's not consensual. They're screaming in pain as he rapes them from behind. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, how, how did this movie get made? It's And I don't find it terribly offensive. It's just like, did you guys not realize like what you were saying? Um, you know, I, I hate to feel like a social justice warrior for pointing, pointing this stuff out. Um, but it's just really, it, it's just really stupid. It just like, kind of reveals that you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, it's like uh, there's no joke to it. It's just kind of like, oh, this is happening. Like, they did. Um, zany. It's zany, guys. Yeah, it's like... Um, that one was a was that one made by um, Joe or oh, not Joe Rogan um, Seth Rogan Seth Rogan yeah it was a Seth Rogan movie yeah he, um, he did that yeah, in um, I think it's um, this is the end where um, oh, what's his name um, the yeah this is the end yeah the one character gets raped by like the devil and that was the joke that he got raped I'm like that's your entire joke is just a rape and I'm, I'm not, i don't i don't get offended like easily but it's not a joke it's just yeah it's not a joke happening. it's not funny <laughs> it's not there's no setup it's just like rape and we'll put it in a context of a movie so you'll laugh at it you know it's just a context laugh like what i talked about yeah. nothing there's nothing inherently humorous about it in fact most people would find rape to be rather not humorous um and it's only it's only the 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 context around it that you can possibly even think about making a rape joke. Then that one doesn't really have any, any kind of legitimate context other than it's in the comedy movie. Um, yeah, I felt like the, the message, the message of, um, of sausage party was, wouldn't the world be a better place if everyone was a Jewish atheist like me? Yeah, it sounds about right with uh, Seth Rogen, to be honest. Um, he's just—I don't—I don't dislike him. I think he's made some good things. I'm failing to think of any off the top of my head, but um, yeah. you know, I thought uh, Knocked Up was good. Um, was okay. I thought um, Zach and Mary make a porno with Kevin Smith was okay, but in reality, um, after after that movie, Kevin Smith just like really stopped making good movies entirely, uh, and I. I I found out a little story about it. Uh, so Seth Rogen is like a notorious pothead. No way. And yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course, right? Well, Kevin Smith never used drugs prior to meeting Seth Rogen. And Seth Rogen convinced him to start habitually using marijuana on a daily basis. And Bruce Willis told a story about how Kevin Smith didn't even direct Cop Out. He's like, I had to direct half the scenes because he was too high and he was getting high in his trailer and he wasn't on set to make the movie be produced, you know? Yeah. And like, there's multiple people from Cop Out that are like, yeah, Kevin Smith, Kevin Smith was like absent for half the movie because he was too high or he forgot to show up. It's like, talk about like, talk about a bad message about, uh, about using drugs it's like you have someone convince them that you're going to be more creative if you smoke pot. It's like it's 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 easy to feel creative when you're using um, when you're using a um, uh, an aesthetic drug, uh, but in order to be creative, you got to show up to work. 
And I'm sure he thinks that it's not the pot's fault, or well, I don't, I don't think it's the drug. It's just like yeah, if it's you don't never know, the drug. It's always the person. Yeah, of it's like if you don't know like how you're going to react to it, don't use it before you have to go to work and you have a responsibility. Like, but I know a lot of really high functioning potheads, but they know when to use it and when not to. But it's like. I think when a lot of people start using things when they're like in their forties, it's like, oh well, I, I I'm already an established adult, like I can handle this. It's like, no, you 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 went too far with it. Now you're trying to recreate something you didn't have. Yeah, yeah, I think that. Uh, yeah, I think that that's that's pretty accurate. I I I call it the stoner rock illusion, and you know I've been in the music business a long time, um, and. I, I'd say I have more experience with drug use than 90% of people out there. And um, the Stoner Rock Illusion is this belief that, that's definitely like promoted and, and propagated in the music industry, um, that you're more creative when you're high. And so what happens is that people uh, people use an aesthetic drug, and I, I an aesthetic dr- marijuana or um, cannabis is an aesthetic drug. What that does is it... Um, it uh, makes you it, it inhibits your ability to filter out the noise of whatever's going on. Like normally what the way your neurology works is um, you know if you just if, if anyone's listening, you stop now and realize that you're just I'm gonna tell you and you're gonna realize it that you have peripheral vision and you're seeing a huge amount of things in the room or in your car wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast. You're gonna see a lot of visual information. But normally you don't perceive all that visual information because you're focusing on one thing at a time. And what this is is your brain filters out all the things that it decides aren't important and focuses. Um, an aesthetic drug versus an anesthetic drug and, and an aesthetic type drug removes part of your brain's ability to filter that information out. So you'll hear potheads talk about how they hear more of the music when they're high. Well, that's actually true because you're unable to focus on any part of the music. You're hearing more concurrent elements of music happening at a particular given time. However, you're unable to focus on and identify those elements. So there's a massive downside in that you won't actually understand the music that you're hearing. Um, people, and I, I, I would love to see this experiment done if it hadn't been done, and I want to say it has been done. So you have uh, experienced music students try to analyze something orally while uh, under the influence of cannabis and do it while not under the influence of cannabis. And I'd be willing to bet you'd have people have better dictation skills while they're not high simply because they're able to focus on one element of the music at a time. Um, so anyway, that that's the illusion. Now, when you're, when you're high... They call it being high for a reason is because you feel good. So you you get high, you feel good, uh, you hear the music, you think it sounds good, you feel creative, you play notes, you're like, man, those notes sounded great. And uh, then you think you've created something. Now, after the high fades and you've forgotten what you did and you're trying to reconstruct it, you end up realizing that there wasn't that much to, to, to reconstruct. Or you go and record yourself, you go back and listen to it when you're sober and it's, it's not – it's not as good as you remember it being. Well, it's because you created it while you were on a substance that makes things sound better to you, that makes things uh, sound more pleasurable or sound more interesting to you, when in fact they may not be very good at all. Interesting, because it's kind of like the opposite of like Adderall and Ritalin, where that helps. Yeah, those are stimulants, and so they're, they will increase your ability to focus. It's kind of like the opposite of Adderall. That's a really good way of putting it. Interesting. Yeah. So let's see. Um, anything else about like sequels or um, prequels or anything else like um, or more interesting drug drug information? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I I think the thing about sequels is that you are going to see bad sequels as long as uh, 
the audience does not perceive a strong connection between creator and creation as well. So this is the last bit I'll put. Um, when there's a strong connection between creator and creation, uh, you're not going to see sequels. So, you know, no one's going to write a book that's a Jurassic Park sequel because it's very much bound up in who Michael Crichton is. The fact that there's Jurassic Park movie sequels and people are willing to watch them indicates that they didn't really take Michael Crichton's creation of the Jurassic Park sort of mythos or IP or whatever you want to call it. They didn't take that, uh, his connection to that very seriously. So as long as audiences don't take the connection between creator and creation in a really serious manner, you're going to see more sequels, more reboots, more prequels, more remakes, all the kind of crap that I think makes uh, a lot of Hollywood movies suck. And they only make those because there's a built-in audience. If you make another Ghostbusters movie, everyone already knows Ghostbusters and likes it. Who cares that none of the people who created the original Ghost Ghostbusters movie are involved in this new one? In fact, we had to threaten to sue them in order to get them to show up as, as a cameo. Oh, I didn't know um, that. I was wondering why they were in it. it was a late, there was a couple leaked emails from Sony that they, they basically threatened all the old actors with lawsuits because of old contract obligations they had wow. um, to to show up and record a scene for the new movie. Of course, Dan Aykroyd um, didn't write or have anything to do with this new movie. And, um, and uh, um, uh, Harold Ramis, the other guy who wrote the first two Ghostbusters movies with, with Dan Aykroyd, um, he's dead. So uh, once Harold, it's it's like magic. Harold Ramis died, and then they started producing a new Ghostbusters movie because the someone who owned a part of the controlling interest in the IP wasn't able to stop them anymore. What an odd coincidence! Uh, yeah, what an odd coincidence. So as long as people, you know, and I, my encouragement to the audience is is know the creators, know the writers, um, know the the directors, know the people who create these things because. Um, Whatever they do, if you like, if you really liked a movie written by a particular writer, you're probably going to like the other movies that he wrote. Um, and you should focus on on creators that you know are able to communicate well, rather than an IP, because the IP is just used to to tap into your wallet and, and find a pre existing sort of fan base, not to um, not to create some kind of ongoing canon of good things. That's that's I guess that's an inherent problem with the comic book industry. It's like we have like 60 years or something of Spider-Man comics. Who knows how many people have had their fingers in that Spider-Man pie? No one has a good idea of who Spider-Man even is. But everybody has point. like an idea of, of what Spider-Man is. Yeah, everyone everyone has like everyone has some idea of what Spider-Man is, but there's no one person who controls who he is. And then they'll argue about who the true Spider-Man is. Oh yeah, it's the same thing with with Iron Man. It's like Iron Man wasn't like a wisecracking dude in the comics. So people are like, "That's not my Iron Man." It's like ugh. there's been a hundred different writers who wrote Iron Man since he was created. It's nobody's Iron Man at this point. It's just it's just an idea that is used to sell comics and movies. It's just an idea at this point. So that's my that's my last bit. Very cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a good way of kind of tying it together. I think overall, when people say, like, yeah, I can't wait to see a sequel, I think you just have to ask yourself, do you really want to see more of that story, or did it did it end properly? Are you really willing to risk a story you liked being ruined by, by <laughs> that's a really good point. Content? 
because that's like like even just going i know I've, I've harped on star wars so much but it's just it's such an iconic thing that and there's so much that has been done with it but i remember thinking when force awakens was out like is it even possible to make a sequel to this that can work and that came out yeah like, nope at least not right at least not in the way they're doing it and i would have much I, rather to be just a trilogy than what it became yeah i i mean it here's an here's an interesting thing is that if the story's good if it's good enough for you to like it then it probably ended in a way that it was tied up in which case there's no a sequel's not necessary unless maybe you're watching like matrix or something um which kind of tied it up but then like left a lot open and if it didn't do that then you probably didn't like the movie that's true yeah so if you didn't like the movie you probably didn't want a sequel so that's i don't know there's a video game just like um this it just kind of reminded me of called um, Heavy Rain, where it's yeah. um. Did you ever play that one? Yeah, I played it. Yeah, the creator of it had a really because I like to look at stuff on like Wikipedia, and he said um, they asked him about a sequel. He said, "If I can come up with a, with a story, I'd be glad to, but I'm not going to keep telling a story I already told." He goes, "That's just stupid." I'm like, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Like, it's a great way of looking at it. Yeah, but um, yeah, this has been a great conversation, and thanks a lot for joining. Me. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. If you want uh, if you want to read my books, you can find me at davidvstewart.com or dbspress.com. All my books are on Amazon or they're free on my website if um, if it's one of those that's free on my website. There you go. And uh, you have a, you have a new podcast now, don't you? Yeah, Writers of the Dawn. Uh, it's not on iTunes yet cuz you've got to get like a couple of I think you got to get like a couple of them going before your RSS feed will function in iTunes. So that'll probably be in iTunes maybe, I don't know, next week uh, once I record a couple more with my my uh, my friend Matt. And um, But you can find it on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash writers of the dawn. Not writers like you're writing a pony, but writer like you are writing upon a piece of parchment with the finest quill and the darkest ink. Very cool. Definitely a lot to look forward to. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll see you in a little bit.